Hi, good afternoon. Welcome to the Hudson Institute. My name is Mike Duran, and I'm a senior fellow at the Institute. <coughs> uh, and uh, we welcome you today to talk about uh, the US election and the, and the future of Iraq. We're very honored to have with us a very distinguished panel. To my immediate left, this is Dr. Nuseva Yunus, who is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council uh, and the director of the Council's Future of Iraq program, Task Force on the Future of Iraq. To her left is Dr. Faisal Istrabadi. He's a former Iraqi ambassador to the United Nations. He is the founding director of the Indiana University Center for the Study of the Middle East. And he's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And to his left is Michael Pregent. He's a senior fellow here at, uh, at Hudson. And he's recently returned from Iraq uh, from the front lines. He was, Mike, was a, Mike was an intelligence officer in Iraq. Uh, and he's recently come back from the front lines. And without further ado, I think I'll just turn it over to Mike uh, to give us a sense of what he found from his trip in Iraq. Mike? Thanks, Mike. Thanks for being on the panel with us today. Um, I just recently returned uh, from the front lines where I asked my former Peshmerga general I used to work with when I was in uniform in 2005 and 2006 to show me the front lines. He wasn't able to do it initially because he's in Bashika but another Kurdish commander was able to take me to the front lines to see what was going on. Um, this panel is about how Iraq is looking at the US election. And what I really want to emphasize is it's not what they're looking at next week on Tuesday. It's what they're looking at the day after Inauguration Day. They're looking at January 21st. They're really concerned about what the next 80 days look like. As you look at the Mosul operation, it's supposed to wrap up ahead of Inauguration Day. It's a, a political timeline set both by Prime Minister Abadi in Baghdad and President Obama. And that rush to complete this operation has me concerned, has the Peshmerga concerned, and has a lot of the Iraqis I talked to concerned in that Ramadi was not a successful operation to defeat ISIS. Fallujah was not a successful operation to defeat ISIS. Tikrit was not a successful operation, yet each is touted as how to do this right. If you look at Ramadi today, it lies in ruins, it's not secured, and the, the minimal force that Iraq has left behind to secure the population from ISIS is dealing with a resurgence, is dealing with ISIS attacks. So as you look at Mosul, um, and you look at a population center of 1.2 million with an approaching force of 30,000 coming at it, Part of that 30,000 is an unsanctioned force that has been told not to participate by Prime Minister Abadi and by the United States. It's not listening to us, and it's not listening to Prime Minister Abadi, and that's the Hashid al-Shabi. Those are the Shia militias that are controlled by the IRGC. And when I say that, people say that's not true. But if you look at the two commanders that are in charge of the Hashid al-Shabi, the first one is Hadi al-Amri, who is the Badr Corps commander. The second one, is Abu Mehdi al-Muhendis, a designated terrorist who leads Kitab Hezbollah, a designated terrorist organization. 
And then you have Case Kazali, another leader of a designated terrorist organization called um, Asab Ahul Haq, or League of the Righteous. And they have said that the Mosul operation isn't about liberating the Sunni population from ISIS or Daesh. It's an operation to revenge or avenge what happened 1,400 years ago. So the biggest problem I have is the comparison that I'm able to make between 2007, the surge, and this ISIS strategy today. Uh, I was on the ground during the surge, and I just recently came back. And at no time will we have allowed or been part of, meaning supporting, a military force that flies sectarian flags towards a Sunni town. And that's what's happening today. And as you look at the next 80 days, what can happen in Iraq, we should all be concerned that Iran, the militias, the parties that don't have the mission of securing the population or defeating ISIS, believe they have 80 days to do as much as they want. And this isn't only in Iraq, this is also in Syria. They believe they literally have 80 days to get as much as they can and then wait and see to see what happens with the US election. Um, I won't go into the polling specifics, but we did talk about that this morning. There, there's some interesting polling numbers coming out of Iraq, and it's not so much as, as who they prefer, they just want somebody to do something about it. Well, 66% prefer Hillary Clinton, 19% prefer Trump, but both believe each will do something different than the Obama administration, and that's what's important here. This current strategy isn't working. The players in the, on the battlefield um, have priorities. The first priority should be defeat ISIS. Second priority should be protect the population. Third, po third priority should be reconcile with your Iraqi uh, sects, meaning the Sunni, the Christians, the Kurds, different groups in Iraq to make sure Baghdad is trusted. That's not the priority list. Right now you have competing entities in Mosul. You have the Turks concerned that the Shia militias would go into Lafar and go after uh, Sunni Turkmen. They're, they're posed for that. You have the Turks also concerned about Kurdish expansion into Mosul. You have uh, the Shia militias worried about Kurdish expansion. You have the Iraqi government concerned about Kurdish expansion. And the only thing we don't have to worry about in the Mosul operation is Kurdish expansion because the Peshmerga are not going into Mosul. They are taking a uh, blocking positions. They have a limit of advance. They will not be going into Mosul because they're more concerned about what's happening in Kirkuk. They're more concerned about the Hospital Shabi. You have the Shia militias, the PMUs, or the PMFs. You have a force of 100,000 Iraqi uh, Shia. There are some Christians in there, or maybe 1%. There are some Sunnis in there, maybe 3% of that force. The people that are joining this movement believe they're doing the right thing. They want to go after ISIS. The leadership has other intentions. The leadership is focused on winning in 2018, uh, getting more leverage over Baghdad, more than they already have in the upcoming 2018 elections. But their leaders are rejecting a body's call to not participate. And they've also threatened to not only participate in the Mosul Offensive, but to attack American advisors. And that's, that's concerning. Um, while I was on the front lines, you know, we all, we all talk about the Shia militias. I saw militia flags flying and sectarian flags flying, and I asked an Iraqi, Iraqi officer who was there. He was from Baghdad. He was the commander or the operations officer for an artillery battalion. 
And I asked him, is that, is that the Hashem al-Shabi? He goes, no, that's the Iraqi army. So it's not the Shia militias that are only carrying these flags. The Iraqi army is carrying, are carrying these flags. And every organization, from CNN to BBC to Al Jazeera, anybody who's covering this war, every time they say the Iraqi Special Operations Forces are entering Mosul and having success, ignore the flags in the video that they're showing. And they should pay attention to it because Baghdadi's paying attention to it. He just put out a call to everybody in Mosul that the militias are coming. Um, the Sunni population is paying attention to it because they saw what happened in Ramadi. They saw what happened in Fallujah. They saw what happened. If you, if you pull a person from Ramadi, you'll find that they are waiting for the reconstruction money to come in. They're waiting for their city, to, at least the, the, the semblance of a beginning, to, to, to rebuild the city. They distrust Baghdad more than ever. They distrust the United States more than ever. And we were simply resetting the conditions that led to ISIS to begin with in this operation, in that these towns aren't being liberated. They're being uh, laid to ruins. They're being, uh, the population is being expelled. And the strategy, there's such a low benchmark for success in this campaign that the strategy, to me, feels like as long as you can replace an ISIS flag with an Iraqi flag, you're finished. As long as you can do that in the city center, you're done. And that's not what's, what's happening. That's not how you defeat an organization. The United States military never went into a town one time and claimed success. We learned in Fallujah, 04, 05, that you cannot destroy a city and expect to kill al-Qaeda. All we did was anger it, push it somewhere else, and it came back with a vengeance. It wasn't only till we tried to build some temporary trust between the Sunni population in Baghdad, with the US being a guarantor, that we were able to defeat al-Qaeda through Sunni intelligence and Sunni manpower. And the same thing is happening now. If you pay attention to the Mosul operation, you have Sunni residents sharing intelligence with the Peshmerga, with the Iraqi army on ISIS locations. You have 300,000 uh, Sunni military males in Mosul. And that's a conservative number based on 1.2 million people being in Mosul that have not joined ISIS, have not been asked to join ISIS, and that ISIS feels is a threat. If this operation pushes them to a position where they feel that this invading force isn't there to liberate them, but there to punish them, much like Mosul, Fallujah, and Tikrit, then we're likely to see something very ugly that may be called success in the press, that may be called success by this administration, that will lead to a resurgence of some kind, whether it's ISIS 2.0 or simply ISIS morphing into an al-Qaeda model. I'm probably going over my time, so I'll stop there. Uh, that's great, Mike. Before I, uh, before I pass the microphone uh, to the ambassador, I'm going to summarize what I heard you say in four points, and then you can tell me if I got it right or not. Okay. okay. Po point number one, uh, everybody on the ground is trying to improve their position before the new administration comes in, un under the expectation that the new administration is going to do something different, and they want to position themselves to influence the new administration as best, best uh, as possible. Number two, we, have, we, the United States, have no vision for the, the political, uh, uh, for the post-conflict order that will follow the, the expulsion of, uh, of ISIS. Number three, we are uh, unwittingly handing, uh, uh, handing Mosul uh, and, and, and more, more broadly Iraq to the Iranians. And number four, uh, we are alienating the Sunnis in such a way that we, will, that we have uh, laid conditions for, for, uh, for a return of ISIS as the defender of the, uh, of, of the Sunnis. Is that, do you disagree with anything that I just said? No. Well, 
I'm glad you summarized it that way. It makes more sense than what I just said. <laughs> you, what you said made great sense. I just want to. The, the thing is, I'm taking a, a, a warning position based on what I've seen in the past, indicators and trends, and I respectfully hope that you can moderate my comments if they're too, too alarmist. But I'm concerned that this is a, there's, there's a political timeline, not a timeline to actually defeat ISIS, but a political timeline to claim success and then move to Syria. And all you do is look over your left shoulder and you'll see that you haven't done anything in Iraq to defeat ISIS. You simply taught ISIS that it's probably not wise to put up an, an ISIS flag in a city and claim it is yours unless you can shoot down American aircraft. And that's the biggest lesson learned so far in this campaign. Uh, thank you. Uh, and with that, let's pass it over to, to the ambassador. Thank you for being here today. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much uh, uh, for moderating. And uh, I do want to thank the Hudson Institute for the invitation to speak here again. It's a pleasure to be back. And I particularly want to thank Michael Prejean for uh, organizing the, uh, for organizing the, uh, the, uh, the panel. And as well as to uh, thank all my colleagues on the panel. Now, let me look at it, if I may, from the perspective of uh, what I think are in Iraq's uh, interests. Um, and I'll try to make, uh, we've been asked to speak for a relatively brief period of time. Uh, I'm a former trial lawyer, and I usually can't clear my throat in 10 minutes, but I'll see what I can do. Um, <clears throat> I think that um, one of the biggest mistakes that the United States made in uh, circa 2011 was its complete disengagement uh, from Iraq. I don't mean necessarily the withdrawal of troops. Uh, that's a more subtle uh, question dealing with the, uh, I mean, I do wish that the United States had maintained troops there, but I also understand it from the perspective of uh, the Iraqi government refusing to give immunities to American troops and all that. So I understand all that. That's a, that's a discussion I don't want to have at this moment. I'll be happy to get into it in questions and answers. But I mean the sort of um, intellectual disengagement and the sort of uh, uh, disengagement at the, at the ground level so that you could treat Iraq as a sort of um, the same way that you might have diplomatic relations, say, with Switzerland. Um, and that really is, has been the, the, the strategy that, if that's the word, that has been, that has been the, uh, the policy in any case um, for uh, uh, too many years uh, since. That is to say that, well, Iraq is an independent state and there are certain issues you don't interfere in, uh, for an in, in, with respect to independent states. So if the then Prime Minister of Iraq comes to the Oval Office and tells the President of the United States that I intend to um, proffer charges of terrorism against the highest ranking uh, Sunni in Iraq, the proper response for two states dealing with one another diplomatically is, well, that's an internal issue. We have no opinion on that, which is, of course, precisely what happened. Um, it was easily predictable, uh, and many predicted that uh, we were going to head down the road, although the spectacular success of ISIL, I don't think anybody predicted, but that we were going to head down to a road that would result in uh, uh, at least circumstances that are akin to 2005 and six. Uh, and that, unfortunately, is where we ended up in the summer of 2014 with the fall of the city of Mosul in half a business day, Iraq's second largest city with a population of 1.8 million. As Mr. Prejean has said, Iraq, in, uh, the U.S. has no policy for the political, political dispensation in Iraq after um, ISIL. I'm not talking about the narrower, important 
but narrower issue of who governs in Mosul or in Nineveh governorate after the fall of ISIL. That also is an important question. Uh, but I'm talking about the broader strategic question of what does Iraq uh, look like. The United States has been focused like a laser beam on the narrow issue of defeating ISIL militarily in Iraq, um, but not for the uh, political future of the country. And I think that's largely been true throughout the Obama administration, uh, perhaps even before the Obama administration. So Iraqis, I think, have a fairly good sense, an excellent sense of what it is we are fighting against. I think um, we don't actually know what we're fighting for. Um, uh, and I, I hope that as the, uh, obviously within the next few days, uh, we will know who the next president of the United States will be. I hope that comes up to a very high level of importance in terms of Middle East policy, Iraq policy. Iraqis have some decisions to make. Do we, in fact, want to live in a united country? And if we do, what does that mean? Do we want regionalism? Do we want the Kurdistan regional model multiplied uh, throughout the, the country? Do we want, in fact, a true federation? Inhering in all of this, of course, is the Kurdish question, uh, which has been raised, although not lately, by the president of the KRG. Um, uh, we have uh, at multiple opportunities over the uh, past two and a half years, the president of the KRG, President Mas'ud Barzani, has talked about a referendum on independence. Well, fair enough. I think most Iraqis would concede that Kurds have a right to independence if they want it. Um, um, and that would certainly be, again, their right. The problem is not that. Uh, the problem has been that the Kurds have neither quite been in nor quite out of the country, and that is untenable. Um, if they want their independence, fine. If not, I think uh, that we need to um, be in a position where all factions actually begin to come together to build a, to build a cohesive state, which we do not have now. Um, and I think that is something that the uh, United States um, ought to uh, press. I guess I have two broad points to make before I give up the floor. Um, one of the priorities, I think, that uh, has to be, that there's something that is unspoken that I know and I haven't articulated yet, and so uh, let me do so now expressly. Um, former US ambassador to Iraq, uh, Ryan Crocker, once said that the Americans are hardwired into the Iraqi political system. And I agree with him. Um, um, the pos many positive things have occurred when the United States has engaged uh, with the Iraqi political system. And too many negative things have occurred when it has not done so. Uh, there are many reasons for this that I don't have time to get into in my, my main remarks, but we'll be happy to talk about later if, if it comes up. So it's in that spirit that I'm making all of my remarks. But one of the things I think that the US new administration also ought to make an issue uh, that I think is vitally in Iraq's interests, and that is the management of Iraq's relations with its neighbors. Um, 
uh, Iran's uh, influence and physical presence in Iraq must be reduced. I know that's very easy to say, much harder to do given the histories of the governing political parties in the country. The physical presence of Turkey in Iraq, a NATO ally after all, hopefully the United States still has some influence there, that simply is not acceptable. It is simply not acceptable uh, to have a foreign head of state uh, insisting that he has a right to intervene in Iraq as a protector of a group uh, in Iraq. That simply is intolerable. No Iraqi government can tolerate that sort of interference. And it is extremely destructive of it's an interference which is extremely de destructive of the ability of the Iraqi political class to come to um, a, mute, a meeting of the minds, as they used to say in the law of contracts. Um, I'm a strong believer in the line from the poem by Robert Frost uh, that uh, strong fences make good neighbors. And at least in, since 2003, uh, we've ripped down all of the fences. This is actually one of the uh, consequences, one of the sequelae of the uh, dissolution of the Iraqi army and security forces that we have Paul Bremer to thank for. Uh, that uh, particular gift continues to pay dividends uh, more than uh, 12 years after Ambassador Bremer left Iraq. And of course, we have to balance uh, our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, a policy should be, and it's, it, it amuses me to, to put it in these terms because Turkey has clearly abandoned the motto, but it has to be the Kemalist motto, peace at home, peace abroad. Um, we will have in Iraq no peace internally if we do not strike a balance between three far more powerful neighbors. Um, we have tilted too far in the direction of Tehran, in my view. Uh, we need to balance um, between Riyadh and Ankara. And if we don't, um, then the, uh, our regional uh, neighbors, our neighbors, will continue to find ways of balancing against uh, Iran's outsized role uh, in Iraq. If the Iraqi political class has not learned that lesson, uh, there will be very little uh, room for hope or optimism, it seems to me. Iran's role in Iraq will always be destructive. Iran will always want a weak Iraq. It doesn't matter who governs in Iraq. If Khamenei's son became the prime minister of Iraq, it will be in Iran's interest for Iraq to be weak. Now, the, I'm not suggesting that they want the chaos on their border that we've had since uh, 2014. Finally, uh, the last point I'll make, and I have gone over my time, I apologize for that. The, finally, the, the last point I'll make is that the PMUs and militias um, have to be disbanded after uh, the military operations are over, and that is much, much easier said than done. I am told and we'll see if this actually happens, that after Mosul is liberated from ISIL, to expect a fatwa from the Grand Ayatollah Sistani, um, thanking the rank and file of the PMUs and telling them they need to go home. Uh, 
as Mr. Prejean has said, the leadership of the PMUs have entirely different, um, different ideas. But I have to say, to the extent that we maintain sectarian, uh, non-constitutionally uh, based uh, militias and allow them to roam freely, I couldn't agree more with Mr. Prejean than when he says what we're setting up are the conditions for ISIL 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0. Uh, we have to start to look to building a, rebuilding a state of Iraq. Um, and that is probably harder to do now in 2016 than it might have been in 2003. First of all, there was no excuse for disbanding the state of Iraq in 2003 in the first place. Uh, but I don't get to turn the clock back. It's probably harder to do now than in 2003 because there, there was no trust amongst the, the new pol political elites in 2003. There is less trust now than there was then. Uh, but it is vital if we are not to continue in this uh, cycle, uh, this sort of vortex increasingly descending at greater and greater speeds uh, into a morass from which it will be impossible to return. And if we break apart under these circumstances, we're far more likely to break apart into a Somalia than we are into three, uh, you know, Kurdistan, Sundistan, and Shiistan. And that should focus the minds of the planners of the next administration wonderfully. Thank you, and I'm sorry I went over my time. Thank you, and if I could just, uh, uh, if I could, at the risk of doing uh, injustice to all that you said, if I could turn it into one piece of advice for the next uh, president, whoever that might be, um, it would be that they, they should see the role of the United States as fending off the external players, uh, especially Iran, but Iran, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia, to create a space in which the, uh, a, a space in which the Iraqis can work out their problems with each other without, without foreign intervention. That would be the number one priority. Or, or have I got that wrong? Uh, no, that is the number one priority. But second, and very closely to it, is that the United States must actually also engage the political players inside Iraq to help to facilitate, and not to dictate the terms, obviously, but to help to facilitate a process uh, which leads to a mutually, a modus vivendi, at least. We've never had a modus vivendi on, uh, on, uh, since 2003. Um, and, um, uh, and certainly, obviously, the Constitution which I think has been a failure, did not provide such a modus vivendi. Um, so we need to, to rethink the state. We need to rethink a working, um, a working, functioning state in a very, very tough neighborhood. There is the external component, but there also has to be an internal component. Uh, thank you. Dr. Yunus, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, the, the floor is yours, and uh, these gentlemen have uh, put some provocative theses on the, on the table for you to address. Thank you very much. Um, one of the things that's been really interesting about looking at the Iraqi media coverage of the, of the US presidential elections has been that the coverage has been very, very sparse. Uh, and actually, there's been a lot less interest and engagement in Iraq as compared with other countries in the Middle East in this very, very controversial election. Uh, and part of the reason is that Iraqis really don't know what to expect from either a Trump or a Clinton presidency. They don't, they, they don't understand how the two possible administrations will differ from the Obama administration and how they will differ from each other. 
So that's kind of the first obstacle when Iraqis are really looking at this election and, and, uh, and trying to figure out what, <clears throat> what they think and what their opinion is. Um, actually, the, the foreign policy platforms of these two candidates have been very, very unclear. And where they have been pushed, they've been pushed on the Syria issue and actually very, very rarely asked about what they would do differently in Iraq. And, you know, this has partly been played into by the Obama administration, um, you know, with President Obama really trying to wrap up the liberation of Mosul in a neat little bow to end his presidency on it with a bang, you know, which is not really how counterinsurgency works. Uh, but, you know, he, he keeps giving the impression that he's dealing with Iraq and Iraq will be done by the time he leaves office. And that, you know, that's not, that's just not at all the case, but it's rather let the other ha the candidates off the hook uh, when it comes to explaining what their plan is for stabilization and for a continued counterinsurgency operation, because the liberation of Mosul is not the end of this. Uh, and we really haven't heard a strategy from either candidate as to, as to what they are going to do once they uh, reach office. And of course, the Iraqis are super conflicted about this because they also don't know what they want the US to do. <laughs> there's a lot of disagreement in Iraq. Um, on the one hand, there's a lot of appreciation for the US assistance in driving out ISIL. And there's a pretty wide consensus that Iraqis do want continued US assistance to drive ISIS out of Iraq. And, and certainly once ISIS is driven out of these territories, as has been our focus, you know, I think US assistance will continue to be appreciated in tackling the inevitable insurgency uh, you know, that's likely to dominate Iraqi cities after the liberation, uh, the formal liberation takes place. But beyond that, the problem in Iraq is that there is an incredible Iranian um, capture of the Iraqi media. I mean, and it's much, it's, it's less insidious than it sounds. It's just, you know, it's just kind of, uh, you know, people seeking to exercise soft influence over TV presenters, you know, donations to TV channels. You know, there's a lot of relationship building that's happened, and there's a lot of persuasion that takes place. And the, it means that the kind of Iranian narrative on what US intentions are in Iraq is, is very pervasive. And the United States does an absolutely terrible job of public diplomacy, of talking to the Iraqi public about what its intentions are, what its goals are, what the game plan is, what it's trying to achieve Right? And the fact that it's not trying to steal Iraqi oil or be a conqueror or stay in Iraq forever or use this as an excuse for some other nefarious geopolitical um, reason. And we have to be able to effectively counter the kind of Iranian-driven narratives that come out of the Iraqi media because the Iranians are engaged and we're not. And engaging with Iraqi media is not, is not that difficult. You know, that's something that we could be doing um, that we're not doing. And, and as a result, there's such a murkiness in the Iraqi public consciousness about what level of US engagement they want 
and how comfortable they are with it and on what kind of time scale they want to see that continued engagement. And I think we, US policy could really benefit from a clear, sustained articulation of what our long-term strategy is in Iraq. And I think there's some very clear things that we could be doing beyond the liberation of Mosul. Uh, and the, the next administration, when it comes into office, should really look at these key points. So number one, we will not defeat ISIS when we liberate Mosul. <laughs> and so we need to have a strategy for continuing to partner with Iraqi security forces and especially with Iraqi intelligence to help to train them uh, and build their capacity to conduct long-term penetration of extremist networks. Not just to show up in a Sunni village and chuck everyone in prison, that's not defeating a counterinsurgency in the long term. You know, you want to be building up some real capacity to disrupt the financing networks, to disrupt the, the, um, the IED assembly networks and the sourcing of, of uh, those materials that are needed to assemble car bombs. You know, they need to be effectively and systematically tracing uh, the remaining networks that will go underground and that will keep ISIS alive in Iraq, potentially for many years to come unless we offer the kind of support to the Iraqi intelligence services that will be needed to effectively defeat this group once it's disappeared back into Iraqi towns and cities. And that is something we can offer. Those are skills that the Iraqi intelligence services know that they need, know that they're lacking, and that they respect from the American side. You know, that they want those skills to be coming from the Americans. And that's something we can very, very concretely offer and say that our goal is to, is to, help, the, to help support the Iraqi state to eradicate, eradicate terrorism. You know, that's, that's something we can do, and that's not something that's on a presidential election timeline. You know, as long as it takes, as long as the Iraqis need that support. The other thing that's absolutely going to, to be needed is... The United States will need to act as a buffer, and it doesn't want to play this role, but between the Iraqi Kurds and Baghdad, uh, during the war against ISIS, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan has extended its territory by about a third, has seized almost all of the territories that, have been that were previously disputed between the KRG and Baghdad, and there's a real risk that the Hashd al-Shaabi, that the Iraqi Shiite militias, will, once Mosul is liberated, will turn their guns against the Peshmerga and try and retake Kirkuk. There has to be a mediated diplomatic settlement to these territorial, uh, to these territorial um, conflicts. You know, we cannot afford to see Iraq now you know, on the, having just retaken territory from ISIS but not tackled the root causes of the, of the insurgency. We can't afford then to suddenly be distracted by this Kurdish-Iraqi war over, over territory. Um, and the United States is, is the power with the relationships, with the clout, uh, with the international standing, to be able to prevent actors uh, from acting in an unrestrained way in this battle over disputed territory, and to initiate a credible, internationally um, respected process for mediating these territorial disputes. 
And that, you know, that's day one after Mosul is defeated. We need to make sure that we're getting, the, the, you know, the Peshmerga and the Iraqi counterterrorism forces and the federal police and the Iraqi security forces are working so beautifully now, uh, you know, together to defeat Mosul. And then the day after, we need to get these forces away from each other and out of the disputed territories, um, you know, so that we can avoid that conflict from happening. The other great risk is that the Hashda Sha'abi, these Shiite militias, have in many sections of the Iraqi population become very popular, um, you know, for defending Iraq against, against terrorism. And, um, and, you know, and it's partly a function of how unpopular mainstream Iraqi politicians are, right, for being corrupt and, for, for, you know, performing extremely poorly. And, and we've got elections coming up, provincial elections next year, and then parliamentary elections the year after. And there's a very real risk that pretty hard-line parties could do very, very well in, that, in those elections. And I think something else the United States could be doing is helping to support you know, moderate, accommodationist, inclusive Iraqi leaders who are capable of delivering some of the kind of political compromises that are needed to bring about a genuine reconciliation in Iraq and that are needed to address the root causes and drivers of extremism in Iraq, you know, to help them to better connect to their constituencies, to better deliver on what their constituencies are demanding, and to remain credible political actors in the face of what promises to be a genuine, um, you know, a genuine political threat, um, you know, from, from a pretty hardline set of groups that are likely to set the reconciliation agenda way back. And that's something that we really can't afford to see. Um, but, but it's something we can help to tackle just by helping moderate political actors to perform better uh, because they're underperforming so, so woefully right now. And the final thing that the United States can do and can articulate is that they can continue to act um, to rally global uh, supporters together to help with the reconstruction of liberated areas. What we don't want to see is these liberated areas that have been devastated by airstrikes and by the military campaign and by the IEDs left behind by ISIS. We don't want to see these devastated areas. Most, most of them are Sunni areas. We don't want to see a second class or an underclass of Iraqis living in very deprived, economically deprived areas, kind of cut off really from the political system and, and creating the conditions where radicalism thrives. You know, we want to reintegrate these areas as quickly as possible back into the rest of the country, we want to get basic infrastructure set up, economic opportunities, education, you know, and and that requires resources that the Iraqi government is struggling to find at a time of low oil prices. And the United States has done a good job, but can really continue to take a leadership role in this, in gathering its allies and friends from around the world uh, towards providing the resources that are needed and performing the kind of coordinating role um, in helping the international community to really invest in the stabilization and the reconstruction of the areas that are liberated from ISIS. And that, I think those elements constitute a real vision for medium to long-term engagement in Iraq that's a genuinely positive one, it's helpful, 
I think it's something that a lot of Iraqis could buy into and help them to make sense of what an American role would look like and what it means and why it's something that would be of benefit to them. Thank you for that. Uh, I wonder if I could uh, ask you um, one question to clarify uh, your position uh, with respect to the, uh, the other two panelists. Um, I heard you say that the, uh, that the Iraqi media has been penetrated by the Iranians and that there's a, a tendency to adopt the Iranian line on, um, uh, on what the United States is up to. Um, but I didn't hear you wave the flag of concern about the, the role more broadly of Iran in, in, in dominating um, or, or extending its influence over, over Iraq that we heard from your, uh, from your colleagues. Do you share their concern? Is that, is that a major concern of yours? Um, or, or are you seeing things a little bit differently? I am someone who believes that Iran extends its influence where there is a vacuum and where the political costs are relatively low. And we have made operating in Iraq, in Iraq a very easy, low-cost, high-reward political exercise for the Iranians. And once we articulate our strategy for engagement and we offer something to our Iraqi partners on the ground and say, hey, we're not just going to turn around and leave in six months and leave you in the lurch. We're actually real partners who are offering a sustained alternative. You know, there are many Iraqis who have great antipathy towards Iran and, and worry about the level of Iranian penetration and about what Iranian interests are in Iraq. But balancing against Iran is very difficult when there isn't, when you don't see a partner um, for balancing against Iran with. And I think if we offer the United States as an alternative and we make clear that, hey, we're around not just for five minutes, we're still going to be here and we've got your back and you can afford to, to be critical and you can afford to pursue your policies um, you know, without fear of Iran, um, you know, then I think, I think the opportunity is there. I don't think the Iranian role in Iran should be, should be something that scares off the United States from engagement. And so uh, you are broadly in agreement with the ambassador that the job of the United States is to hold the ring around uh, Iraq and then to help the Iraqis to sort of mediate between them as they solve their own problems. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, Mike, if I could come back to you. I think we've, we've got a lot of agreement, uh, more agreement than I expected here, um, in general picture of what, the, uh, uh, of what the, the, the challenge is for the United States. Uh, I think there's also agreement with, um, Dr. Yunus made me realize that there's broad agreement between the Iraqi people and, uh, and, the, and the American people that we're completely bewildered as to what this election will hold uh, and, and, and uh, have no idea uh, what, the, what the future is going to bring. Um, it seems to me that if we were to follow the, that the average viewer, we have, this is uh, being broadcast by C-SPAN, uh, and the average American watching this is going to be listening to this advice and saying, what's the cost to the United States? What's the cost in dollars? What's the cost in, uh, what's the cost in military commitment? Uh, and you know, one, one of the big takeaways um, that we have over the last decade is that the, the desire among the Americans to shoulder these costs uh, is uh, much less than some of us would have uh, uh, some of us would have expected. So, with that thought in mind, could could you talk to us? Is there a way 
that the United States can play the role that, that, that's being outlined here um, uh, without a George W. Bush style re-engagement with 100,000 or 130,000 US troops? I think the most important thing is it's not, it's not the, the cost of the operation. Let's say we went big and we spent a lot of money on this. It would mean nothing if we announced, like you said, that we're leaving in six months. You can't build trust and relationships by saying you're going to come in and do something and then you're leaving in six months. It's not enough time to build trust. So I, I would associate trust and belief in what we're saying we're going to do. I'd weigh that higher than any cost. Uh, so to the American people, if you're watching this, uh, I argue right now that if we're not going to address the Iranian influence in Iraq, we should just stop now because we're simply facilitating, uh, I don't want to say the Iranian takeover of Iraq, but we are partnering with militias not only out of uniform in the Hashim al-Shabi, but the DDR process, which is so important, that's disarming, uh, demobilizing, and reintegrating uh, these factions, like Sistani will call for after the Mosul's liberated, to reintegrate the militias. They're not going to stand out. They're going to be brought into the Iraqi security forces. And I would argue that that doesn't work, because that was done in 2005 when we brought in the Badr Corps and, J and Muqtada al-Sadr's Jaysh al-Mehdi into the National Police and the 6th and 9th Iraqi Army Divisions. The 16th Iraqi Army Division that was stood up to go into Mosul that's coming down from the north into Mosul is from Baghdad. It's from Sadr City. It doesn't know the streets of Nineveh. It doesn't know the neighborhoods. It will be rejected by the population if it is the, the securing force afterwards. So basically what I'm saying, none of this works unless there's a commitment to be that long-lasting partner in Iraq. You know, when you look at Iraq, there's three consistent foreign policies in the region. Russia has the same foreign policy position that it's had for 30 years. Iran has the same position, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has the same position. I'm sure Turkey may have the same position as well. The U.S. position changes based on who's in office. And, uh, you know, I've been told multiple times uh, talking to Iraqi uh, Sunni tribal leaders and Peshmerga leaders that it's, it's almost, you're in a better position to be an enemy of the United States than to be a friend of the United States. You have more leverage as an enemy than you would as a friend. And that's very concerning. Um, the, the thing that I would, you know, as we're looking at what the Iraqis are looking at this U.S. election, we should also look at what you mentioned, the provincial elections of, of 2018 and the parliamentary elections of 2018, the provincial elections of 17, right? In that, these militias believe they have a mandate. They believe that they are the, they, they protected Baghdad. They kept Baghdad from falling to ISIS. The, the media supports that narrative. They're operating outside government control. If a body criticizes them, they can have him replaced. They are going into the Mosul operation because they, they want to. They need to be part of the liberation of Mosul to claim success that it was because of them that ISIS was defeated. We need to be watching the Iraqi election because that election is going to either get us back into Iraq to defeat the, the second and third iteration of ISIS, or to basically go into northern Iraq to protect the northern Iraqi populations from what's coming from, from the militias. Um, when I talked to a, a Peshmerga general recently, he said, listen, we could defeat Daesh, but the Hashid al-Shabi are keeping ISIS alive, or whatever reiteration of that is. Their concern is that the Hashid al-Shabi was built to retake these disputed areas. 
and not necessarily to defeat ISIS. They're concerned that the Hashid al-Shabi, the Shia militias, are there to retake Kirkuk and Nahuija, Beji, other areas. And that's concerning because they carry the Iraqi flag. So if the Peshmerga fire on the Hashid al-Shabi as they encroach, it's treasonous. They're firing on forces carrying the Iraqi flag. Now next to that Iraqi flag is also a militia flag or you know, a religious flag that sends a message to Sunnis that we are coming, not as liberators, but we are coming to demonstrate we have primacy now. The, the message is not only to Sunni Iraqis, but to the Peshmerga and the Kurds as well, that we are coming to take back what we want. And that is what you hear from the leadership of these militias. Again, not the foot, foot guys. I mean, they may be saying that as well. They truly believe they are joining something that is noble and right. The leadership's just taking a different direction. And you think that we could, do you think that we could frustrate those aspirations with a, with a relatively light commitment of troops? That, that if, if, I hear you, if I hear you correctly, you're saying that the key is the political commitment and, uh, and political consistency, and, and that that alone will have, a, will, will have a very beneficial effect absent a significant, uh, a significant commitment of troops. I'm concerned about the, the footprint we have right now in that 5,000 Americans are in Iraq and 100,000 Shia militia members are in Iraq, led by the same people that targeted Americans five years ago. And they've made these threats. I don't think we can do the leverage part where we start to curb Iranian influence and, and, and start trying to get the militias to stand down without putting our current footprint at risk of being targeted. So these are, the, so the, the, the 5,000 troops that we have there are hostages, in a sense, or potential hostages, if Iranian policy were to, were, were to change. Our footprint is constraining our ability to actually go after ISIS and actually curb Iranian but At the risk of putting you on the spot, how, how many troops do 30, you have? 30,000. 30,000. 30,000 in Iraq and 30,000 in Syria in some capacity. So we're talking a commitment of 60,000 troops I it guess. doesn't have to all be U.S. It just has to be a NATO-led, international community-led force that's uh -huh. U.S.-led because I don't think Iraq wants it to be Russian-led. Or, you know, right. maybe they're tilting that way if we keep disengaging. They're going to tilt that way. It needs to be a, a strong NATO-led force that has the ability to say no, to put pressure on Baghdad, to say no to Iran, and to actually say we're here to give you the political space to reconcile with your community so that you don't have these, these fanatic-type organizations that are able to come in and unseat or, or take advantage of a disenfranchised population that views that is being oppressed by its central government. And we have that in Damascus. We have that in Baghdad. It is a recipe for ISIS. It's a recipe for instability. When you have a Sunni population center that used to be, to be able to look to the West and say the Americans are here to, to help us, and now look to the West and say, what are, you, what are you doing? Why are you tilting towards the Iranian position in Iraq and tilting towards the Iranian position in Syria as well? Okay, thank you for that. Sorry about that. Uh, no, uh, uh, Mr. Ambassador, do you, do you agree with Mike that, uh, that the United States can fulfill the role that you would like to see it play with a, with a relatively modest commitment of, of, uh, of force? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, I'm also, I guess, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm aware that, uh, first of all, I'm not a military expert. Obviously, he is. I'm not. But, uh, uh, I mean, but, 
and, and, I, and I think it is a relatively modest of necessity because I don't think there's an appetite. I mean, I, I guess I'm the only one on the stage up here who doesn't live in Washington or the environment. So I come from the, the Hoosier heartland, as it were. Um, and I don't think there's an appetite in the rest of the country for a, a large, long-term, sustained presence uh, uh, in the Middle East, generally. Anyway, not in Iraq. Um, yeah, but uh, there has to be, it has to be, exp I mean, the American public will, 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 will tolerate a, a policy or will support a policy that is explained to them in, uh, in terms of American interests. And that, I think, has been absent. Mm. Um, what are the American interests? Well, uh, the withdrawal of the U.S., and, and again, it's a complicated matter, uh, but aside from the military, the sort of political and, and, and intellectual withdrawal from Iraq in 2011 um, leads to the rise of ISIL, which turns out to have all kinds of implications for vital American interests, not least of which is the effect that the refugee crisis that it is in part causing uh, is having on the European unity project, which has been a cornerstone of American foreign policy since the days of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Um, so these things are in the interests of the United States, uh, aside from the, the, the fight against uh, terrorism, uh, which is a, a common fight to all, uh, to, the, to the civilized order. Um, I think the American people could be on board that uh, program. But I mean, Iraq hasn't been in the election at all, I think, other than the question of who did or didn't support and when. Um, but that's a fairly, uh, uh, shall I say, mundane debate. Uh, the interests, if any, and I think there are, uh, uh, of the United States are, have not been debated at all. And I think there are significant American interests in ensuring that Iraq does not become a... Uh, uh, sort of a sustainable environment for terrorism. Dr. Yunus, uh, are, are you in agreement with that as well? And it seemed to be what you were saying, that there are, there are uh, uh, Im impulses or proclivities, uh, uh, inclinations of the actors on the ground uh, in Iraq uh, to work in a way that would further U.S. interests if the, U if the United States would just change its posture. Is that, that's, is that your view? Yeah, I think that saying the American people don't have an appetite for engagement has been a bit of a cop-out for this administration, which is really saying we don't have the appetite for engagement. Um, and actually, it's about explaining to the American people what the costs of disengagement are. Mm. You know, if you want to disengage, That's you need right. to have an honest conversation about what the risks to American uh, to American interests in the world are, and what the risks are to the kind of global order that we've managed to build up. Um, you know, so, so are we really prepared to kind of cede the Middle East to Russian leadership? Is that something that's in our interest? Are we prepared to leave Iraq and Syria without having achieved a genuine and sustainable defeat of ISIS? Uh, and the other thing when you're talking about costs is a relatively modest military and diplomatic and political cost uh, in, in the short run can actually save you an incredible military cost in the long run when you let instability take root and you let extremist organizations take massive swathes of territory and threaten not just your regional allies but your allies across the world 
and yourself at home, you know, suddenly then the cost becomes much, much more significant. So it's about assessing the costs of disengagement uh, and, and a relatively modest investment up front can really pay dividends over the long run. Can I, uh, can I ask you about the Russian factor? Um, if you were to answer those people who say, uh, uh, which includes, uh, I think, Donald Trump, uh, that uh, the Russians broadly share our interest in, defeat, in defeating ISIS, why don't we bring them into the, uh, into the security architecture of the region and, and, and work with them? Uh, because, uh, uh, because they, and I think there's a lot of people as well who believe that the Iranian interests are broadly in alignment with ours. How would you answer that? So the issue is that the United States and fundamentally disagrees with Russia and Iran on what the root causes of extremism are. We believe that extremism is driven by uh, unrepresentative authoritarian political policies that exclude sections of the population, that oppress, and that drive people into the arms of extremists and make the extremist narrative uh, more and more popular and appealing. Whereas the Russians and the Iranians really look at this as a problem of control. You know, the state wasn't able to exercise sufficient violence, right, to be able to contain this extremist population. And so, so their entire policy for defeating ISIS is just bombing the hell out of Aleppo. And bombing, you know, just, it's just the use of force. Uh, and they have no political strategy at all for dealing with what the drivers of extremism are. And that's where, you know, and look, we've learned this lesson in a really tough way. We've engaged in Iraq, we've engaged in Afghanistan, uh, and, you know, you cannot kill an insurgency. You have to transform an insurgency. You have to reduce the drivers uh, that inspire people to join these groups, and you have to give people political alternatives. And that's why, that's why we're trying to invest in, in, in governance structures that can actually offer people the things that they demand from, from, uh, from their politicians, rather than just simply you know, relying on a violence-only strategy. Uh, Ambassador, did you have a comment? Uh, two points. On the last one, I'm not sure it's factually correct to say that the Russians um, uh, have been focused on ISIL to begin with. Uh, certainly in their first intervention, which began a, about a year ago and ended more or less in March-ish of 2016, um, they were in fact more or less targeting the opponents of the Assad regime who were not ISIL. Um, so it's not even clear, I mean, it seems that they bought into the Assad strategy, of uh, the Russians did, of, um, maintain, of, of, of being able to say it's, it's me or ISIL. Uh, by allowing ISIL to uh, uh, sort of survive. Um, the other point that I think Dr. Yunus got absolutely right is on the question of engagement and where I think the false dichotomy uh, that has been created by the administration in terms of engaging in Iraq is, well, you either send in 150,000 troops or you do nothing. And this, is, this was the response to, in 2011, the administration's response of what to do in Syria, and she's exactly right that by failing to calculate the cost of inaction, um, we have far, it seems to me, exacerbated uh, the problem in Syria. And, and you have a similar calculus to make um, in Iraq. 
What Vladimir Putin and exactly what his strategy is is another story. Today is another story. But in the first Russian intervention in Syria in uh, September, October 2015, more or less ended in March of 2016, what Vladimir Putin proved, in that intervention at least, is that it was possible for a foreign power to intervene uh, with a limited strategic purpose to achieve that limited purpose at relatively low cost and to, and to press the off button. Um, it, it, and the limited purpose, it seems to me, in that first intervention was to ensure that Sadat, uh, Sadat Assad did not fall. And he achieved that um, with virtually no significant losses in it, relatively minimal expense. And again, you're far more expert on military matters than I. But that's a lesson that I would have wished that, the, that those who always say, well, do you want 150,000 troops or remember Vietnam in the US administration, I wish those people had sort of learned that lesson a year ago. And there are, there are others, just, just to build on your point, there are others who are saying that, that, uh, that the use of military force is inherently counterproductive. And it also, it also uh, refutes that argument as well, I think you'd agree. Uh, Mike, I wonder if I could turn you. We've just got a few minutes left. Uh, everybody here flagged concern about Iran in one way or another. Um, I recently had a, a conversation with a, with a very senior uh, former uh, military commander in Iraq, and uh, I discussed with him the, the uh, role of Iran in Iraq. And I posited the possibility that Iran does not really want to unified uh, Iraq, um, that it's actually might be quite comfortable with a, um, with a, with a, with a fragmented uh, Iraq, and, and certainly an Iraq in which the, in, in which the Sunni areas um, are not are no longer really part of the uh, uh, of the um, of the political system. Um, uh, he, uh, referencing other experts, dismissed this possibility out uh, out of hand. It came back to me one of the comments that uh, uh, that the ambassador just just made about about Iranian interests. I wonder if you could discuss that a little bit. Do you do you do you agree with the proposition that they might want a fragmented and weak Iraq or or can we assume that ultimately they want to see a unified Iraq, and that at least on that narrow area we have a, a, a shared interest? Um, going back to 2014, I've argued that Iran needs a threat of ISIS to stay in Iraq. It needs a threat of ISIS to stay in Syria. And back to your point, Qasem Soleimani of Iran's Quds Force, the IRGC's Quds Force, is able to mobilize Iraqi Shia militias to go to Syria. They didn't go to Raqqa and Deir ez-Zor. They went to Aleppo. They went to Marjlis. They went to these other places that were places that would shore up the Assad regime, that would go after US-backed rebels. Uh, they were very comfortable working with the Russian Air Force already. And some militia leaders have actually asked that Russia be involved in the Iraqi <coughs> operations. Um, Iran, I believe it wants a fractured state in Iraq. It wants to maintain its leverage. Uh, the one thing that kept Maliki in power as long as he did and helped him survive through the 2010 elections was the threat of an al-Qaeda resurgence. There's always, it's always nice to be able to say, keep me in power or they'll come back. The, I don't believe that Iran wants ISIS defeated in Iraq, but I also believe it is balancing the 
political benefit of defeating ISIS in name only with its geopolitical parties as they seek uh, positions in 17 and 18. Uh, if you just look at the motives, it's, it's been to, to take over places, the, the, the Sunni Triangle, to Crete being the place, birthplace of Saddam Hussein, to be able to take over these places, punish Ramadi and Fallujah, to protect the Shia sectarian fault lines, and then allow everything else to just be pointed that way. That's where the enemy is. To build up the and to build up the militias, which they have influence over on the ground, as opposed to a, as opposed to a unified Iraqi uh, military. They have influence in the Iraqi military as well. We have got to remember the federal police are Border Corps. They are the Ministry of Interior. They are Jaisal Mehdi and Border Corps. They just wear uniforms. And these militia members that are part of the Hashid al-Shabi will brag, "I can wear the uniform of any Iraqi military force on any given day." And in many cases, they have salaries from both the Iraqi military and the militias. But each it's one, work if you can at get the it. end of the day, will break towards allegiance to, uh, unfortunately, towards the Shia political parties that are beholden now to Tehran. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, do you agree with that assessment? Uh, I do. Uh, look, I, I, I collect maps. Um, and, and my oldest map, I think, uh, is from the 16th century. Um, I collect maps of the Middle East. Actually, I collect maps of Iraq. Uh, my oldest one is from the 16th century. They get a little more expensive, obviously, the farther back you go. So I only have one from the 16th century. But over the centuries, you can see Baghdad. Uh, in one map will be a part, say, of the Ottoman Empire. In the next, uh, the next map, it's part of the Iranian Empire. In the next map, it flips back, and then it flips back. And so countries may change. I mean, regimes, governments come and go. Regimes change. Interests remain the same. Um, Iraq is the battleground between great powers. It has been for centuries. Um, you, with all respect to your senior former American commander, he ought to look at maps that are a little older than the ones that the Pentagon publishes today. Uh, these things have been going on in, this, uh, you know, in Iraq for centuries. They will continue to do so, uh, which goes back to my quoting uh, Robert Frost about strong fences. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Yunus, uh, do you want to address that point, or do you have anything else to say before I hand it over to the audience? Yeah, I just, I just note a, a little bit of caution about Iranian intentions in Iraq. I think that um, some controlled chaos yes. is maybe pretty, is maybe pretty beneficial. You know, a, a situation where there's some uncertainty, where there's a range of actors that all have uh, a relationship with Iran, and and where you know. Um, where you can kind of control outcomes is, is, is really beneficial for the Iranian government. But, but actual disintegration right. of Iraq, I think, is not at all in the Iranian interest. I think uh, the independence of Iraqi Kurdistan has been an absolute red line for the Iranian government, not least because this year we've seen a resurgence in the fighting uh, in Iranian Kurdish territories with Pijak taking up arms again, and the Iranians suffering from you know, their own separatist groups uh, in their own Kurdish region. And the idea of having some separate Sunni region in Iraq that's you know, supported by, that could be supported by Saudi, or, and they would see it as a kind of Taliban-esque like, statelet, that's not at all something that Iran's interested in seeing. But do you agree that uh, a pre-2014 status quo uh, of, of bombs going off in Baghdad and creating uncertainty and some 
degree of chaos, but not the, the threat of the total collapse of the state, yeah. is an Iranian interest. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, you know, 2013, I think the Iranians would see as kind of the perfect yeah. state of Iraq, you know. But of course, you cannot have 2013 Sorry, in Iraq. Sorry, for our, for our yeah. viewers at home, could so you... In uh, 2013, you, you had a very strong Maliki government that was pretty Shia-dominated, um, with a marginalized Kurdistan and a marginalized Sunni population and uh, an incredible Iranian influence on, over the Iraqi government. The problem is the Iranians might think of that as their ideal, but you cannot have that without an inevitable breakdown. You can't have 2013 without... 2014. 2014. <laughs> and I don't know if they've learned that lesson. Actually, it doesn't seem clear that they have learned that lesson Not clear the Iraqi Shia political class has learned that lesson no. either. No. Uh, okay, well, that's fascinating. Uh, okay, with that, let's, uh, let's open it up to, uh, to, to questions uh, from our, for our audience. And the gentleman in the sport coat there with his hand up, could you, if you could stand up and wait for our intern there. Thank you. I'm Rafi Danziger, an advisor to APAC. And my question is to uh, follow up on what has been said about Iranian influence, not only through the Shiite militias, through the media, but also in, on the government itself. I understand that there has been very serious infiltration of Iranian agents into various uh, government agencies, into security forces, intelligence. Can you elaborate a bit more about what's going on? Because that's, I think, uh, really uh, threatening to Iraq's future. And your question is to all of our panelists, is that? Yeah. So, uh, Mike, why don't we start with you? <clears throat> my, my role in Iraq, I was there from 05 to, to 10 in some capacity. Uh, was to look at the intelligence services and specifically the Iranian influence within those. Um, the Sunni, um, the INIS is what it was called at the time. It was basically the former Ba'athist uh, intel service uh, was, was set up by the agency. And it was very effective at going after not only al-Qaeda, but also going after militias. Uh, the Shia political party, specifically Iran, stood up the MSNSA, which was uh, led by Sherwan Waili which was a Dawah Tanzim guy. So he was, he was an Iranian proxy, and it was set up to mirror that organization. Uh, once we took the hands off in 2010, after Maliki won re-election, the INIS went away, and the MSNSA simply replaced it. So you had these effective former intel guys that were Ba'athists because they had to be a Ba'athist in order to get a job at the time. These effective intelligence officers went to ground in some cases left the country, some cases may have even joined ISIS in the beginning stages when it was a rejection of what was happening. Um, my biggest concern was I literally saw units flip. Uh, in, in 2005, the 6th and 9th Iraqi Army Divisions had a healthy balance of 55% Shia, 45% Sunni, so where you didn't even have to keep track of the numbers. It was an Iraqi unit that was able to do things in Baghdad. Within a year, right before General Petraeus took over, when General Dempsey was actually in charge of this, this DDR process, the reintegration of Shia militias, both of those divisions went to 95% or greater Shia with a heavily militia, heavy militia infiltration. Uh, the one thing that I will say about the security forces and the intelligence services is that the only Kurds participating in the ISIS operation are Peshmerga units. There used to be Kurdish divisions, Kurdish battalions that were reflagged Iraqi army units. That has gone away. There used to be Sunni battalions, Sunni brigades, Sunni divisions. That has gone away as well. Now we have a 
a hollow force of 150,000 Iraqi military, uh, predominantly Shia, and the Hashid al-Shabi that's 100,000 strong. And then you have the Peshmerga operating completely outside of the Ministry of Defense, but still listens to it, uh, doing these operations. So the intelligence services, if you want a, a good target, you go to the, to the Kurdish intel services. If you want a good target against ISIS, you can go to some of the, the, the Shia intelligence services, but you're likely to get uh, a Sunni military, Jamal lives in that neighborhood, that whole neighborhood is ISIS. Let's go destroy that. And that's what we've seen in Ramadi and these other places. Uh, so I was very concerned about that, not only the, uh, the change in the structure of the security forces, but the, also the intelligence services, but more importantly, the Shia political party influence that kept that in place. Mr. Ambassador, do you have any thoughts? Uh, one, one real quick thing. Prime Minister Abadi inherited Maliki's intelligence and security apparatus. It's still in place. It's the same one. It didn't go away when Maliki went away. And Maliki is often photographed with a radio talking to these very forces, moving them around, trying to discredit Prime Minister Abadi. So uh, uh, can we say Maliki did not go away uh, and, that, uh, and that he has tied Abadi's hands? I often hear that. Or is he has that, the luxury is, of not being accountable for any of the chaos, yet uh, controlling a lot of it. Would you say that he is as, uh, as influential as Abadi, more influential? More influential. Um, Abadi, Abadi, can't, Abadi is Maliki circa 2005. Maliki was a compromised, weak candidate. Prime Minister Abadi is now him. Mr. Ambassador, do you agree with that assessment? Uh, uh, the, I know it's OK. No, the Prime Minister <laughs> is weak. I mean, uh, he, he, he is uh, weak. It is true. Um, um, I, however, um, think that in distinction to uh, Mr. Maliki, uh, Ms., uh, Dr. Abadi, I think, has his heart in the right place. Um, um, he came in as a compromised candidate when the United States was pushing for other individuals uh, who were unacceptable um, to uh, parties outside the Shia alliance, uh, including the Kurds and the Ayad uh, Alawi, the former Prime Minister's party, and other parties. And so it settled on uh, Prime Minister Abadi. Um, so this is a real problem. And, and what Maliki did when he first took over was to, uh, was to sort of expel Brahim Jafari from the secretary generalship of the Da'wa party. Um, Abadi should have done something like that to, to Maliki uh, with respect to the state of law. He didn't. Um, that was a political mistake. Um, and a lot of the sort of kerfuffle that's now going on with the interpolation and removal of ministers um, is, uh, is, seems to be, uh, in, in some respects at least, the, the beginning of it at least, was engineered by Maliki. It's a, it's a real problem. And, um, and I think it's part of the Iranian game, again, to keep the state of Iraq weak, to keep the politics of uh, the state of Iraq weak. And this is fundamentally, I think, I'm going to go broader than your question, if I may, but this is fundamentally the question we have to ask. And what we don't know is, why are people, what are people fighting for? There are certainly rank and file, uh, the, the rank and file of the, of the popular mobilization units and of the Iraqi army and the Iraqi security forces, as Mr. Prejean has said, are clearly fighting for Iraq. 
but the leaderships in some instances are not. They're not fighting for a united Iraq. Um, they're fighting to protect political turf. They're fighting to protect Baghdad and Point South, but not for the unity of Iraq. We have squandered. The United States has squandered. The Iraqis have squandered the last two and a half years by focusing so exclusively on the military aspect of this and ignoring wholly the political aspect. The military is a necessary but not sufficient uh, element. Without getting the political aspect right, the political environment right, we'll be back in this situation in two years and three years and five years. Dr. Yunus, would you like to weigh in? I'd just say on the, on the Iranian point, I think, I think it's less helpful to think of this in terms of Iranian infiltration uh, as thinking about Iranian utility. Part of the reason why Iran gets to be so influential is because they offer things to Iraqi politicians and to military actors that are useful. Money, uh, they really are helpful in gathering the votes together and helping to influence other actors and helping you to build an alliance so you can get whatever your project is through the Iraqi parliament. You know, they're very influential actors in, in Iraq, but they're willing to get down and dirty and engage with Iraqi politics on the level of individual politicians, figuring out what they want, what priorities are. You know, they're like doing some great kind of congressional lobbying, <laughs> essentially. It's not that nefarious. I mean, there are nefarious aspects to it, but, but we can compete. <laughs> we choose not to. Uh, but there are people who are happily take U.S. help instead in building an alliance to pass something uh, through the Iraqi parliament that, that we think is actually in the, in the better interest of stability in Iraq. Just to clarify, I'm, I'm speaking of the IRGC, not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. I really enjoyed the discussion. Um, Doug Brooks from the International Stability Operations Association. Um, bringing it back a little bit to the U.S. election, um, so one of the candidates, uh, Donald Trump, has specifically said that he would take the oil if uh, the U.S. was involved. How much play has this received in Iraq um, that you actually have a candidate that says if we're going to be involved, we would take the oil? Dr. Yunus, you want to start? I think the Iraqis have always thought that's what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit of a problem. When our PR is so bad, they, don't, they can't even differentiate between some completely outlandish idea and what our like, often constructive policy has actually been. And that's on us for not making it very clear what we've been doing there. You mentioned uh, in your initial comments that the, that the Iranian narrative about us is the one that dominates in, um, in, in Iraq. Is this part of it? And I wonder if yeah. you could just give some details yeah, about what, how the Iranians depict us. Yeah. Well, for an Iranian narrative of what the U.S. is doing in Iraq is building its, um, building its empire in the Middle East so that it can dominate and extract resources uh, you know, and, and maintain kind of American imperial domination over the world, and that Iran is the leader of the resistance axis that seeks to resist American hegemony. And oil domination has always been a part of that narrative. So, you know, and then ordinary Iraqis in Basra or whatever, where oil-rich cities, then don't see investment in their schools and health services and see sewage on the streets. They're not seeing that money. It's going somewhere. And they don't know where. I mean, it happens to be going into the 
pockets of corrupt Iraqi politicians not coming to the US, but for ordinary, you know, Basrawis, they don't know the difference. I was going to say, you know, public discourse in Iraq is often a bit more subtle than it is um, in the United States. Um, and I suppose an Iraqi reaction could be at, uh, uh, well, we knew that, but it really shouldn't be said in public. <laughs> Mike, any thoughts? Abe. Oh, well, I'll get you, I'll get you in the next time around. That's fine. Sorry. Uh, thank you. I'm Dave Rabinowitz, and uh, retired. And I was wondering, you've all explained why U.S. policy is not working and not likely to work. I'm just wondering, what should U.S. policy be? And specifically, should that include nation building, as seems to have been implied by a couple of speakers? Uh, if it does imply troops, uh, how do you handle the immunity question? And finally, uh, which of the candidates is more likely to implement such a policy? Uh, Oh, uh, Mr. Ambassador, you want to take a shot at that? Uh, uh, it does involve state building. Um, and here I will invoke famously what reputedly was uh, put at the feet of Colin Powell, the pottery barn rule. It's the United States that dismantled the state of Iraq when it was wholly unnecessary to do so in 2003. In fact, it was an idiotic decision. It was singularly the worst decision the United States made in Iraq, at least. Um, it does involve that, um, but um, um, so I think that that's, uh, that's a part and parcel. And look, uh, a place the United States refused to engage in state building when it seemed the mission was quote unquote accomplished was in Afghanistan when the, uh, when the Russians finally withdrew. How did that work out for us? So now here we are in the heart of the Middle East, in an oil-rich state, which if I'm right, if it continues down the path that it has been on, if it breaks up, will break up into, as I think I said, another Somalia, except this will be a Somalia where some of the factions, at least, will be able to sell oil, uh, smuggled oil on the markets, which some are doing anyway. So there is a United States interest. Um, uh, as to which candidate, I can't really answer that question because I haven't heard either candidate address, I mean, we have had a dispute between the two candidates as to what their thoughts and views were in 2003 and whether they were right or wrong in 2003, but I have not heard what they would do in Iraq. Uh, there's been some minimal discussion about Syria, but none that I'm aware of on Iraq, so I, I can't address that part of it. Mike, do you have some thoughts? Uh, the most important part is is a commitment to stay, not as a military force, but as a force that continues to put leverage and pressure on Baghdad. Engage. Do the, engage and do the right thing. Um, it doesn't, we have a very patient enemy and there are very patient actors in the Middle East and they don't operate on Western clocks. If you tell the Taliban you're leaving in five years, the Taliban says the day after they leave, we'll attack. Uh, the same thing with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, very patient actors in the Middle East. And the best way for us to do anything, if we're going to send soldiers there and we're going to spend money there, is not to say we're going to leave until something is accomplished. And when I say that, trust is built to the point where U.S. leverage is continuous. Uh, it's not fleeting. A very dear friend of mine is a retired American general who always says on this question that with his kids, 
he never had an exit strategy. <laughs> he had a long-term engagement strategy, which moderated as they got older. <laughs> I think the analogy works pretty well in Iraq. You can't treat Iraq as you did in 2003, and certainly not with uh, what you could have done but didn't when there were 150,000 troops, American troops there. But simply kicking them out the door and saying, well, I hope you don't starve in the streets, hasn't worked terribly well, and it didn't work in Afghanistan. Dr. Yunus. Um, I would just make the point that we are currently engaged in Iraq with an international coalition that is doing some of the heavy lifting, is making a, a pretty significant contribution, and that once Mosul is liberated, that coalition needs to not be dismantled, <laughs> but to transition into the job of stabilization. Uh, and so it's not about the US pouring in resources to try and do all of this job on its own, but it's about using the weight of the international community that's, you know, and the coalition that's been built up pretty painstakingly to support the, the goal of defeating ISIS, to persuade those actors to remain on board for the task of, of stabilizing the country. We, we passed over Abe Shulsky back there. Yeah, Abe Shulsky, I'm uh, here at Hudson, senior fellow. Uh, I'd like to ask the ambassador if he could expand a bit on what, what he sees as the actual way of going about the, the state building project. I mean, you've mentioned that the current constitution and the current government uh, is certainly weak and seems to be somewhat hanging on by its fingernails. Uh, one possible way of looking at the Iraqi state in the future would be going down the regionalization route and saying, okay, there'll be a Sunni region as some Sunnis were interested in before, maybe even you know more than one region in the Shia areas so that Basra has a greater sense of its ability to control its own future and so forth. So that would be one way of trying to rebuild the Iraqi state. I, I get the impression it's not sure preferred way, but I'm just wondering, do you have a, any other way of looking at the question of how to rebuild the, uh, the Iraqi state and what that would begin to look like and who would be the, you know, who are the people that this would uh, rest on? Yeah, well, uh, what you're talking about is a consociational uh, arrangement uh, in Iraq, um, um, which I think um, may be gaining some traction, uh, unfortunately, I will say. Uh, in Iraq. Let me preface my remarks by saying that uh, um, uh, that I understand the, that the Kurdistan region of Iraq, uh, to the extent it remains in Iraq, uh, occupies a special status, uh, and that uh, I'm not advocating the reintroduction of sort of a centralized state with respect to the KRG. Um, that's an important point to keep in mind. Um, having said that, uh, we have been in a phase of, if I may use an analogy to the American, uh, to American history, in the um, Articles of Confederation uh, phase, where a, a, a government in Baghdad has been created which is fundamentally devoid of all powers. And it, may, it didn't work uh, 250 years ago um, in a continent separated by two oceans from meddling neighbors. Um, 
it is not working in the Middle East in a country surrounded by hostile authorities, uh, powers, sorry, powers. I would say to the Kurdish leadership, the greatest threat, and again, please keep in mind the prefatory remarks I made about the KRG. I would say to the Kurdish leadership, the greatest threat that the Kurds have faced since perhaps 1991, but in any event since 2003, was not from Baghdad, but from ISIL, which, arise, which arose because of a weak state, weak at every level, including at the level of, of politics and of the sort of political environment that I have spoken about. A Baghdad that's too strong, um, as was the case for too long under Ba'athist rule and perhaps before, I understand is unacceptable to many players in Iraq. But a Baghdad that's too weak has resulted in 2014, and we're still dealing with that, and potentially we could be dealing with this for years, with the consequences. There has to be an intermediate point. So a stronger, uh, uh, we need a constitutional arrangement that creates a more cohesive state, um, um, and that builds state institutions. Um, we've not only not built the physical infrastructure of the country, which we have not in, since 2003, we haven't really paved a road, and I'm talking about the part of Baghdad that is controlled, I beg your pardon, part of Iraq controlled by Baghdad. I'm not talking about the KRG, where there, before ISIL and before the crash of oil prices, there was a tremendous amount of building going on in the KRG, which I've seen myself. In, Baghdad, in the area south of the KRG, we've not built a school, we've not built a hospital, we've not paved a road since 2003. In addition, as a state, we have not built a single state institution over that period of time. And, that, and, and this has brought us in, uh, to the, the sad state that we're in. So I think you, you have to create a, a stronger, not, a, not, a, not an overly, not a centralized federal government, but a federal government that actually has some powers uh, that actually can act as a focus of cohesion and unity uh, of the state. And uh, that is going to have to be the last word. I'm afraid we're already uh, over time. For those of you who had, uh, uh, who had questions, I'm sorry, you'll have to wait till next time. But I'm sure some of our panelists would, uh, will answer you after we conclude here. Uh, so please join me in thanking our panelists for what was a very engaging discussion. <laughs>